chapter 8, from verse 18, we will read all the way to verse 34, which is at the end of the chapter. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, the two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. As we've been seeing in this chapter, chapter 8, outsiders are being brought in. Jesus has demonstrated his power and his authority. He's healed a man with disease. He's healed a servant who is paralysed, someone who couldn't walk. And he's healed a woman with a fever. If you haven't heard it, I'd really recommend that sermon. really sets up the rest of Matthew. But the chapter opened with, and if you look up, there's two men on the screen. The chapter opened with these two men. One of them was a leper, one of them was a Gentile. These are outsiders. They're unclean. The Jews would go nowhere near them. And we heard Jesus say this. He said, nowhere in Israel have I found such faith. And he said, many will come, like these, east and west, but the sons of the kingdom, well, they're going to be shut out. That's quite a surprising thing for Jesus to say. But he's saying there's going to be outsiders being brought in. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 8, we're going to see two more men... And these, you can forget about the Jews, the, the Gentiles and the leper. These guys are as unclean as you can get. They're in a pagan land, surrounded by pigs, 
think Jews, okay, surrounded by pigs and dead bodies, and what's worse, they're actually indwelt by demons. These are outsiders, yeah? These are serious, this is serious stuff. And uh, so that's the end of the chapter. But in the middle here, in verse 18 to 22, Jesus introduced, uh, Matthew introduces a case study for us of two more men. Now let me just read that to you in eight, verse 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and marry my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Well, it's great to have visitors here tonight. And it'd be great if tonight God gave you a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And it'd be great if it led you to follow him. That's what he's saying, follow me. But we're consistently faced with these two possibilities. People who either worship him as Lord or people who want nothing to do with him. And Matthew sets up this case study in the middle. Do you notice he doesn't tell us what these guys decide? It's as if he wants us to consider what our own decision will be. Not to focus on what their final decision was, but to think, what's our decision going to be? And it's touch and go, isn't it, for these two guys? He's, put, he's putting the call to follow Jesus to you and to me. We're not just thinking about these guys, he's bringing it to us. And so it's worth asking, what stopped these two guys? Because they were saying, we will follow. What stopped them? Well, it seems to be Jesus, doesn't it? It seems to be Jesus stopping them. Well, the first man seemed really keen until Jesus said, starts talking about what it will cost. Jesus here isn't a dodgy salesman who sort of hides the, small, the truth in the small print. The truth is up front and he says, it's going to be hard. And this is what it's going to be like. He's up front with the truth of who he is. And he's up front about the truth of what that will mean for anyone who follows him. And as Hannah says, he gives us two names in this passage. Well, the name he gives us here is this, the Son of Man. And actually, this is going to be the number one name Jesus is going to use all the way through this gospel to refer to himself. 30 times he's going to say the Son of Man when talking about himself. And so this is the very first time it's used. It'll be worth us knowing a bit about what it means. Its actual meaning is pretty generic. It just means, oh man. Anyone can be a son of a son of man. It's there throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus uses it, particularly uses it as a title for himself. So he says, the son of man. So he says, but the, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There's only one. And he's referring to himself. And... Jesus uses it as a title. He's actually referring to a particular person when he's talking about himself in that way. If you want to flip back to Daniel chapter 7, shouldn't take us too long to get there, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. 
It's on page 744. A very, very bottom right-hand corner. Jesus' name here pushes us to a, pro- a vision that Daniel had. And he says this in verse 13. Uh, verse 13. Sorry, it's on page 745. Verse 13. Daniel said this. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the big picture we're meant to have in mind when we hear this, Jesus saying, the son of man, is of him being enthroned in heaven, being given all authority in heaven and on earth, and him being the Lord and judge of every single person, and that being seen by all. And as we get further into Matthew, we'll see Jesus use that name to say, say those kind of things. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You will see the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man. But here, he starts to use it and starts to show how that enthroning will take place. So we know that's the end destination, but how is it going to take place? How will it come about? And the point is this, it's going to come about through the cross, through suffering and death. And that doesn't seem very victorious, does it? That doesn't seem like the way that we'd expect the Son of Man. But Jesus has said, that is the way through my enthronement in heaven is going to come about. And he starts painting that picture, the first brushstroke this is, of this picture of the Son of Man are these words. He's going to have nowhere to lay his head. Everything else in creation has somewhere that could call their own. And yet, the thing that's going to mark the Son of Man and his journey of suffering is that he's not going to have... uh, This isn't going to be his home. He's going to be constantly on the move. Um, And it's... It's about the constant upheaval he's going to have in his life. So, so Jesus is saying the Son of Man is this. And that's why it's a turn off. Because what Jesus is saying is you follow me and it, it's going to be difficult. You're going to face hardship. And like, like the salesman, he, he, he doesn't hide that from us. He says that's what it's going to be like. And he says that to this man. He knows his heart. And he doesn't butter him up. He lovingly tells him the truth. He calls him to give up everything and follow him. And that's what he says to the second man too. So the second man comes, a disciple. And it seems a bit more reasonable, doesn't it? He's got to tie up some loose ends. And he says, I've got to bury my father. I mean, that's understandable, isn't it? That's the important thing. Well, actually, it's more probable that his dad is alive and well. 
The reason I say that is because burying only happened on the day when people died. So if his dad is dead, he wouldn't be there to ask the question. So this is more of a turn of speech and expression. You know, when my dad is finally gone and out of the picture, at that point, I will come and follow you, right? Do you get that? And it might even sound pretty shrewd to us because he's saying, hey, at that point, I'll I'll have the financial security, I'll have the inheritance, I can actually come and follow you, Jesus. I'll be ready for this new venture. I'll have the means. And yet Jesus says, that would be disastrous. Okay? The implication of Jesus' response, which we heard, let the dead bury the dead, is that Jesus is saying it would take a spiritually dead person to choose to do anything other than to follow him. To do something else before following Jesus. Well, that's a spiritually dead choice. Yeah? So that's what he's saying to the guy. If you're, if you're dead, well, why not bury the dead? But, but, but that's your choice. And he's, it might sound a little bit dismissive to us, but actually it's loving and robust, his invitation, isn't it? He says in verse 22, follow me. He says, follow me. It's an invitation to the guy to follow him. So Jesus has been showing us with this name for himself, the true cost and yet the absolute priority of following him. He is the son of man. His way is to the cross. So if you're going to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything in this life. Or everything has to be on the, on the line. Yeah? But it's worth it. And Jesus isn't uh, hiding that from anyone. He is being honest. He's being open. And he's saying, this is what it will cost. And yet he's going to show us that it's absolutely worth it. Um, so that case study, these two men, is actually an invitation, what are we going to do? We don't find out what these two guys do. Well, those who followed Jesus in verse 23, back in Matthew, they got into the boat with Jesus, didn't they? Jesus said at the start, we're going to go over to the other side of the lake. And now in verse 23... He says, uh, well, they followed him into the boat. That's what it says. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And the people who followed Jesus at that time got to see something new of his glory and how powerful he is. And if you look in, in the next section, we're going to see that Jesus is the son of God. And we see that from verse 23 onwards to the end of the chapter. We've seen Son of Man. He's going to go to the cross. We're going to see Son of God, who he is. So let me read verse 23 to 27. When when they got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? Then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. 
And the men marvelled, saying, What sort of man is this? That even winds and seas obey him. He's a son of God. The winds and the waves obey him. These are experienced fishermen. It should have been just another day in the office. So it's not rough seas. They're used to that. The word here that Matthew uses for the sea is like an earthquake. So think tsunami. This is, you know, this is seismic. This is big. And in his description, it seems Matthew is describing more than just the weather. To the Jews and them hearing this, the sea was always associated with a place of great darkness and fear. Have you ever noticed that in Revelation, when we're described about the new heavens and the new earth, it says this comment, it says, and there will be no sea. It's a bit random. But actually, if the new creation, heaven, is going to be a place where there's no threat, then the absence of the sea, which was what they thought was the biggest uh, threat, that's going to be peace, you know, security, yeah? So you see see that Matthew's referring to something that the Jews would have associated with as a source of evil, really. And actually, Jesus rebukes the sea, doesn't he? He he, He doesn't pray to God to do something about it. He is acting on his own authority, and he rebukes the sea, which is the, the word rebuke, you know, why would he rebuke the sea? <laughs> Unless there's something evil about this storm. Unless there's something that is wrong with this storm that he's putting right. And um, so all of that leads us to see that Jesus is doing battle. And he stands up and the raging waters and the winds, well, they do exactly what Jesus commands. I think I put on your sheets that the creation hears the maker's voice and responds to it. The disciples' question is a great question, isn't it? In verse 27, what what sort of man is this? You know, the kids in their group, they could be easily um, doing uh, some illustrations of how powerless we are. You know, with a cup of water, you know shake it and then we say stop we can't do we can't stop even like a glass of water or a drop from moving and yet Jesus says to a storm like this of this proportion be still and immediately it's still it listens to him Um, So they ask that question, what sort of man is this? And interestingly, the next time the disciples are on the boat with Jesus and it's choppy, they answer their own question. In chapter 14, they say, truly you are the son of God. They answer their own question, what sort of man is this? Truly you are the son of God. So the first thing in that section was that the winds and the seas obey Jesus and we're going to look at the next section which is this he's the son of God because evil spirits see it 
and they know they're defeated. Okay? Jesus is the Son of God because evil spirits see it and they know they're defeated. Let's read from verse 32 onwards. Sorry, from verse 28 onwards. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met Jesus coming out of the tombs. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The disciples were amazed that the winds and the seas obeyed Jesus. And now they'll discover that the powers of evil must obey him too. Mostly we kind of deny that there's a spiritual dimension. We sort of think that demon possession and all of that is reserved for horror movies or, you know, things that we watch on, on the TV on Halloween. And actually, we, in our arrogance, I think we reckon that if people had known more about medicine back then, they would have diagnosed these guys rather than talked about demon possession. And yet we can't deny the sheer number of miracles like this in Jesus' lifetime. The number of occurrences like this. So last week we heard this. Many who were oppressed by demons were brought to Jesus and he healed them all. It seems that with Jesus' arrival, evil is on the move. Demon possession is part of the upsurge of evil opposing Jesus during his life. And yet their appearances, they're characteristically brief. Their prime purpose seems to be to illustrate Jesus' unchallenged authority. His authority is unchallenged. They walk onto the stage only to walk off again. That's how brief it is. In this example, Jesus needs only say the word, as with these two men, and the demons are quickly dispatched. There's no ifs, no buts. That's the power that he has. And that's the power that the demons recognise, isn't it? They know that their time is up in the future. But have you come here to torment us before that time? Well, the answer is yes. Move over, Jesus says. And they're begging him to, to go to the pigs. And, and let me just read to you that section from verse 30 to 32. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Get this, Jesus uses the same water that is calm as a mill pond. That he's just brought the disciples through safely, unscathed. He uses the same waters to drown and destroy evil, to crush it beneath his feet. You know when the God of Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt? He brought them through the Red Sea and as they were on the shore what did God do to, the, to Pharaoh and the chariots he brought the, the, the whole thing down on the head of the, the enemy I think we're going to see that this is the same this is the God Yahweh God the hand of God 
who can, in one movement really, both bring people safely through, his people, and, and, and yet destroy, disarm the powers of darkness. Um, and these two men, well, in direct contrast to the two on the, on the home side of the lake, well, they receive the full and immediate salvation of Jesus. The untouchables receive the full and complete immediate salvation of Jesus. And I guess we can kind of think, well, there isn't really much of Satan's influence today. We don't see sort of people with spinning heads. And yet, the truth is that the influence of Satan that we don't see is affecting, is, is, more, is more dangerous. And the influence of Satan that we don't see is to stop people seeing who Jesus is. Okay? So let's turn to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Does anyone got a page number? 965. Um, can someone read it for us? We'd be happy to read. Yeah, go for it. Just verse 4. So what has the God of the sage done? What is he doing? He's blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God. And hidden and defeated as he is, and we see in this passage, Satan is real. The tragedy is that the influence he has that's harder to see is, is effective in blinding people to who Jesus is. And actually, we should not be complacent. Because it allow, any complacency allows him to pursue that goal, doesn't it? Keeping people from the one who is good. He doesn't want people knowing or seeing who Jesus is. And uh, let me just show you two examples of that. So at the end of Matthew, in these last two verses, verses 33 and 34... The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And just like the guys who were on the other side of the shore, there was something that they loved more that they didn't want to give up. So when Jesus is called to says, lay it down and follow me, well, they didn't, didn't want to. They said no. Yeah? There was something that they loved more than Jesus. And if you, um, if you want to have one more example, it's at the end of chapter 9, in verse 32. Matthew's going to end this kind of block 
which is the, the narrative of Jesus' miracles in, the, in chapter 9, with one last exorcism. So in verse 32 to 34, it says this, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought out, uh, was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. These are the two responses, and they're even starker when you read them here. The two responses. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So the height of Satan's influence is that having witnessed Jesus' power, people would sooner claim that Jesus is in league with Satan than bow the knee to him. Let me say that again. Having witnessed his power, they would sooner claim that Jesus is in league with Satan than bow the knee to him. And yet Jesus can free people from all this and he can save. And he can, he can bring people into his kingdom as he did with the two men. So what have, we, what have we been seeing? We've been seeing that Jesus is the son of God. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. He proves that authority over creation and over the powers of darkness. And yet the question Matthew is leading to is for us. Who do you say he is? That's the question that goes throughout this. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked that of his disciples later on in this gospel. Who do you say I am? I know what other people are saying, but who do you say I am? And if you're here and you've not heard about Jesus before, based on what you see here, he calls you to follow him. And he calls you to follow him today. And actually one day he will return and everyone will see his glory as it's seen here. And the disciples saw something of it and they trembled to see it. But they saw that that authority was good. They experienced that firsthand. His authority is good. He is the one who rescues people from death and the influence of evil. And next week we're going to hear Jesus say to a paralysed man, your sins are forgiven. That's the ultimate good that Jesus has authority to give. Your sins are forgiven. No one else can say that. God can say that. And he can do that for you. So if you're new and you're thinking about this, come to him. Knowing that he saves anyone who calls upon him. Maybe you're someone who's heard about Jesus before. And yet, like those two men, you realise that the call is to lay down everything. And maybe you're still holding on to something. You're thinking, yeah, I know it's going to cost. And yet, I don't want to give that up. And yet Jesus says, that actually, that's, that would be spiritual death. You have to be spiritually dead to choose that way. And so be challenged tonight to think about what that one thing is. And to think, is this, 
Is this as good as Jesus and what he's, he's doing? And having him, the greater worth of knowing him. And actually, for those who are followers of him, live for Jesus' glory because that is worth, that's what everyone's going to see when he returns. Living for Jesus' glory is the best way to live. And yet it will bring difficulty. And there might be some people who are feeling that. And uh, actually that will mean sometimes that people don't like you. They reject you. Because they reject Jesus. And when that happens it can feel painful, can't it? And hurtful. But Jesus is with you. He is the one who will never leave you. And the enemy is a defeated one. Jesus will have the victory. Maybe uh, just now, uh, before we have a time for you to pray by yourself. And then I'll close in prayer.